Thank you, Zach. Appreciate the reading. Welcome to my world. <laughs> Good to see everybody here this morning. Um, our scripture reading at the beginning of the service talked about preaching Christ crucified. That's what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks. We always hope that we're doing that, but in particular, we're going to be focusing on the cross of Jesus, what that cross is about, what it means. Back in 2010, I made the first of five visits to South Korea. And I remember on that first visit, at night we were driving through Seoul, and uh, Seoul is a very densely populated city, and there's just thousands of buildings. And as you drove down the highways and looked out among those buildings, you could see red neon crosses just dotted all over the place, just lots of them. Everywhere you went, you'd see these red neon crosses. And I thought that was a little unusual in, in an Asian country. And so I asked our Korean host, I said, what do those crosses represent? And he said, well, that's how churches here identify themselves, is by having that red neon cross. So everywhere you see that red neon cross, that's a church. And so regardless of the denomination or group that they were a part of, uh, they were identified by that red neon cross. You know, that cross on which Jesus died has been at the center of our faith ever since, hasn't it? If you take the cross out of our, our faith, we have nothing. Our message is the cross. Our hope is the cross. The fact of Christ's love for us and his willingness to die for our sins and the power of the blood that he shed. And so we <clears throat> sing about the cross, as we've just been doing, and we preach the cross, and we live in light of the cross, and sometimes we even wear the cross because we realize that without the cross, we're nothing. Without the cross, we have no hope, but that with the cross, we have the certainty of life everlasting. Jesus made an interesting statement in John 12, verses 32 and 33. He said, just as he was entering into Jerusalem for the last time, he said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John adds the comment, comment that he said this to signify by what death he was to die. When I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus said, I will draw all people to myself. The drawing power of our faith is the cross. The understanding, the realization, the knowledge, the conviction that Jesus died for us and that through his blood we have the hope of life everlasting is what makes our faith what it is. But as much as we love and cherish the old rugged cross, we know that not everyone does. We understand that some people despise it, some people oppose it. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul spoke of people whom he describes as enemies of the cross of Christ. Some live as enemies of the cross, he said. And still today, there are people who reject the cross, people who scoff at the idea of the cross, uh, people who demean the cross, people who make fun of the cross, people who simply ignore the cross, people who deny that the cross ever happened. All of those things are part of the world in which we live. And we stand alone in saying that we are convinced that Jesus died on that cross and that the one who died is none other than the Son of God and that by shedding his blood, he becomes what John called the Lamb of God, 
who takes away the sins of the world. Back in 2004, the film, uh, The Passion of the Christ, became kind of a lightning rod for our culture's animosity toward the cross. There's always been animosity toward the cross, but people tended to sort of keep it to themselves. But in 2004, when that movie came out, it was different. People began to speak out against the cross, make fun of the cross, reject the idea of the cross. I remember hearing one man, a respected scholar of religion, said with a smile on his face in talking about that movie, he said, I have never done anything so bad that I would need anybody to die for me. And the thought that went through my mind was, what about arrogance? But through all of that, we found out how much people really do dislike the cross. So in this series of studies together, we're going to be talking about the meaning and significance of the cross and trying to understand what happened there and understand why it ought to change us. Not because others reject it, not only because of that, but also so that we can better understand it because it deserves all the attention we can give it. It deserves all of the understanding that we can possibly have about it as we proclaim Christ and him crucified. Now, in the Old Testament, there are certain events and certain ceremonies that foreshadow what was going to happen on the cross. And one of these is the event known as the Passover, which you've just heard read about, that Passover ritual described in Exodus 12, 1 to 28. And so closely linked is the cross to the Passover that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb. So Paul clearly saw the connection. He clearly saw the link between the Passover and the cross of Jesus. And we want to see it too. The major similarity between the cross and the Passover is that both of them are about being saved from death by means of a death. They're both about being saved from death by means of a death. Passover, as you know, came in connection with the last of the ten plagues that freed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. Over and over again, Pharaoh had hardened his heart, and he said no, he would not let the people of Israel go. And finally, God said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on the land, and I promise you, he'll not only let you go, he will drive you out of this land. And that last plague was the death of the firstborn in all the houses of Egypt. The firstborn from Pharaoh's house to the house of the lowliest slave. And not only them, but even in the stalls of the animals, the firstborn would die. But the Passover was Israel's protection. It was the way of marking them out as the people who would not die because of that. It was a protection from that plague. Exodus 12, 1 to 28, gives all those detailed instructions that you heard read. They were to gather as families. They were to slaughter lambs. And they had to be not just any lambs, but unblemished lambs, a male, a year old. And they had to eat them a certain way. They had to cook them a certain way. They had to be roasted, not boiled. They had to uh, eat the entire thing. And anything that was left over was to be burned. They were to eat with their, their sandals on their feet and their staff in their hands, and eat it in haste so that they would be ready to go when God said, it's time to leave, fully believing that God was going to spring them out of Egypt. 
And so all those instructions were given in Exodus 12. But the most important thing about it was they were to smear the blood of that lamb over the lintel and the doorpost of their houses. And smear that blood on there as a sign of their faith and their trust in God. And here's what God said. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you, he said. There's an old hymn called When I See the Blood. I don't know how many of you know it. It's not in our books. I couldn't find it. But it's a great old hymn. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's what God said. See, the Passover had a twofold effect. First of all, it preserved Israel from death. And secondly, it gave them freedom from slavery. Because after this plague, Pharaoh begged them to leave. Now, the Passover occurred only one time. It could occur only one time. As a, but as a reminder of what God had done for them in that great event, Israel was to hold this feast, this festival, and reenact it year after year so that they would always be reminded of what God had done for them. That's why John said in John 1, 29, when he saw Jesus walking toward him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He identifies Jesus as the ultimate Passover sacrifice. Now the Passover is fulfilled when Jesus dies on the cross. At the event that we refer to as the Last Supper, Jesus sat with his disciples at a Passover meal. We need to see the connection there, that what Jesus was observing with his disciples was the Passover meal. It was the Last Supper, and he transformed it into what we know as the Lord's Supper, what we're about to partake of together. So it goes from the Passover to the Last Supper to the Lord's Supper. But in that Last Supper, Jesus showed the ultimate meaning of the Passover. Look at what he says in Matthew 26. Verses 26 to 28. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Just as Israel was set free from Egypt. We are set free from sin by the blood that Jesus shed. So that when God sees us under the blood, he just sees the blood. And we are set free from our sins. In all four of the New Testament accounts of the Last Supper, they talk about the bread and they talk about the cup. But the one thing they never mention is the lamb. And yet the lamb was the centerpiece of the meal. Why do they not mention the lamb? Because Jesus is the lamb. That Passover lamb, that slaughtered lamb that they were about to eat, became irrelevant once he died on the cross. He becomes the lamb of God. In Revelation 5, 9, 
the lamb is praised. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. He paid the price by his death in order to free us from death. So just as the death of that lamb in the Passover protected the people of Israel from the death of the firstborn, so Jesus' death sets us free from death. But the parallels between the Passover and the cross aren't limited to a meal, and they aren't limited to the shedding of lamb's blood. Here's some other parallels. Both the Passover and the cross created a holy people. A holy people. You see, that Passover event was Israel's defining moment. That determined who they were. Before the Passover, they were a ragtag group of slaves. They were held in bondage by Pharaoh. They didn't have a future. They didn't know what they were going to do. But once God acted in that final plague and the Passover was observed, everything changed and they became the holy people of God. They became the people through whom God would redeem the entire world. That was their defining moment. They also observed in connection with that the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And that's what it was all about because leaven was a symbol of evil. Now, we don't really get that fully until the New Testament. But leaven is, symbolizes evil. And so they were to put that out of their houses and not eat anything leaven for a whole week during the Passover celebration. As a reminder that you are a holy people and sin is not a part of who you are. In 1 Peter 1, 13 to 19, Peter says the same thing about the cross and about the church. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, as you and I sit here worshiping God through Jesus today, we have been ransomed. A price has been paid for us, the highest possible price. The blood of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the cross then is our defining moment. Just as the Passover was Israel's defining moment, the cross is our defining moment. It tells us who we are. We are the people of the cross. We are the people who are under the blood. But there was a problem with the people of Israel. They frequently lost sight of their sacred identity. They forgot why God had redeemed them. Did you know that during the periods of their greatest apostasy in the Old Testament, those were also times when they were not observing the Passover? They were not observing the Passover. Listen to this statement from 2 Kings 21, or 23, verses 21 to 23. It's kind of startling when you think about it. It describes how King Josiah commanded the keeping of the Passover. 
Josiah was reforming everything in Israel. The temple had been let go. Worship had been let go. The priesthood had been let go. And the Passover hadn't been observed for a long time. And here's what the text says. For no such Passover had been kept, not since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. Did you get that? During the whole 350 years during which, which Israel was led by judges, and during all those centuries when they were led by kings, the Passover was never observed. You remember what those years were like? You remember what Israel was like? You remember how they gravitated toward idolatry? You remember how they even sacrificed their children to pagan gods? You remember how they continually abandoned the covenant with God over and over and over? Why? For one thing, they were not keeping the Passover. They had forgotten who they were. They had forgotten who they were. And as the church, we have to be certain that doesn't happen to us. Because it can, and it sometimes does. That's why from the earliest days of the church, the Lord's Supper has been observed every week as a part of worship. I've had people ask me before, why don't we have the Lord's Supper every week? You know, a lot of churches don't. I had a good friend went to church every time the doors were open when he was growing up in, in a, a denomination in the town that we, that we both lived in. He told me one day when we were both in college, we were talking about communion, and, and he said, you know, I hate to admit it, but I've never... I've never had the Lord's Supper. And I said, never in your whole life? Never. He said, we just never did it. He said, we decided that it really wasn't necessary to do it, and so we haven't done it. Now, here he was, 20-something years old, and he said, I've never had the Lord's Supper, and I've always wondered what it would be like. We sometimes forget that the Lord's Supper is to be part of worship. But I've had people say, but why every week? What are you going to face this week? You're going to face any temptation this week? You're going to face any trials this week? You're going to face any tribulations this week? Do you need to be reminded this week who you are? As you're coming to the end of a week and here we are gathered together, do you need to be called back to the reality that you belong to God? That you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus? And that you're a part of that sacred people? That's what the Lord's Supper is about. And that's one reason why the Lord's Supper was never intended to be a solitary act. It was never intended to be that. Because we are God's people, a community of believers who are called together by that cross. And we come together to remember the cross. And as we eat the Lord's Supper together, we need to ask ourselves, are we being what God has called us to be. Ask yourself personally, am I being what God has called me to be? Both the Passover and the cross create a holy people. Another parallel between Passover and the cross is that they both brought freedom at a price. Israel was set free only through the death of the Egyptian firstborn. It's not just the death of the lamb. Not just the death of the lamb. Think of all the thousands who died in the houses of the Egyptians. And then there was the death of an unblemished lamb. The church, as Peter said, has been ransomed, but not with costly material things, not with things like silver and gold. Those are perishable. But by the blood of God's own Son, our 
Passover lamb. That's how we get freedom from sin. Jesus had a rather heated conversation one day in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 34, with some of the Pharisees. And he told them that if they uh, were truly his disciples, they would uh, keep his word and they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And they got indignant at that. They said, we are children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. That's what you call rewriting history, folks. Because they've been in bondage to everyone. But they said, we've never been in bondage to anyone. And Jesus said this, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Their worst slavery was not the slavery to the Egyptians. Their worst slavery was not the slavery to the Romans under which they were when Jesus was with them. Their worst slavery was their enslavement to sin. And they didn't realize that they were slaves. They didn't realize that they needed to be forgiven because that slavery, if it's not changed, means certain death and separation from God forever. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Did you know that we are not intended to live in the fear of death? We know it's coming, but we're not supposed to live in fear of it. We don't have to. Why? Because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. When God looks at us, what does he see? He doesn't see all of our sins. He sees the blood. And because of the blood, we are redeemed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul said. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's why we can't purposely go on sinning. Because our, our freedom costs too much. It costs too much for that. You know, a lot of folks misunderstand that. They say, once you're forgiven, it doesn't matter what you do. The cross says, everything you do matters. Everything you do with your life matters. Because your life has been purchased at a high price. I appreciate the comment of J.A. Motyer in his commentary on Exodus. He observes that before the Passover, Israel couldn't leave Egypt. And after the Passover, they couldn't stay. That's how it is with us. Before we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we can't get out of sin. We can't get ourselves out of sin. But once we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we can't stay in it. We can't live in it any longer. The Passover sets us free by death. The Passover and the cross also reveal the identity and the nature of God. Exodus 5, verse 2, is kind of the thematic verse of the whole book of Exodus. Moses goes into Pharaoh for the very first time, and he says, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh, who at that point is probably the mightiest king on earth, just kind of looks down in scorn. And he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord, and I will not obey his voice. Who is the Lord? That's the question. And that's what he finds out. And that's what Israel finds out. 
They find out that their God is more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians, more powerful than Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh finds out that this God that he has been mocking and scoffing about is a God who can take the life of his own son and will if he stands up against him and refuses to be obedient. See, in the cross, we learn something else about God. We learn the depth of his love, not just the greatness of his power as in the Passover, but the depth of his love, even for fallen, sinful humanity. Parallel verses in the New Testament, 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now make no mistake about it, there was ample evidence of God's love before the cross. I've heard people say, well, you know, before the cross, God just acted out of strict justice and, and he didn't manifest any grace or any love. That's just dead wrong. I'm sorry. It just is. The Exodus itself proves that. God, in his love for Israel, brought them out of that bondage. By his grace, he brought them out of that bondage. But it was through the cross that we begin to see just the depth of God's love. How much he truly loves us. We have ample evidence of his love before the cross, but nothing like after. Now we know, now we know that God loves us so much that he will not spare his own son to redeem us from sin. And then one last parallel, both the Passover and the cross required divine intervention, divine initiative, but also human obedience. Divine initiative, but also human obedience. No question about it, the Passover and the Exodus were God's doing. There wasn't anything that Israel could do or did do to, to bring about, to motivate God to do what he did in those plagues. He, he did that on the basis of his initiative. He is the one who sent Moses to Pharaoh. He is the one who brought the plagues. He's the one who parted the sea. Without him, none of that would have ever happened. But once God acted, it was up to Israel to be obedient to his voice and receive what God was offering them and to listen to him and enjoy the benefits of their freedom. It was up to them to obey him. Otherwise, they would die. Make no mistake, the cross was God's doing. There wasn't anything about us that motivated him to do it. It wasn't anything that we did. It wasn't any goodness within us. It wasn't any power that we had. It wasn't any virtue that could be seen within us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the Bible says. God, out of his own love for us, sent his son to go to the cross. And now he ha that he has, it's up to us to trust him and obey him. God's initiative is what Scripture calls grace, giving us what we need and not what we deserve. But grace cries out to be accepted. It cries out to be accepted. When the gospel was first preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, and Peter had told that crowd that was gathered together, that God has sent his own son Jesus and that he was none other than both the Lord and the Messiah whom they had crucified. And they, they called out to him and they said, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized. 
In verse 40, he said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Act on it. Now that you know, do something about it, he said. Follow through with what God has set before you. And then it says, so those who received his word were baptized. Save yourselves from this crooked generation and those who received his word were baptized. Make no mistake. God's initiative had priority. But our faithful obedience is a necessity. Or that, that divine initiative has been for nothing. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, Paul says, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That includes you. And I want you to answer this question for yourself right now this morning. When God looks at you, what does he see? Does he see all your sins, unredeemed, unforgiven, unrepented? Or does he see the blood? Does he see the blood that his son shed on the cross? And if you know that when he looks at you, he's not seeing the blood, you need to listen to Peter. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And you can't do that too soon. Let's stand together and sing. There is